Hey, welcome back to Software Social. This episode is brought to you by Translate CI. Translate CI is a tool for developers that helps you localize applications with high quality human translations. It supports over 70 language pairs. Translate CI eliminates the need to work out of spreadsheets, hire translators, and manually merge language files. Instead, with Translate CI, you can just use Git. Just connect your Git repo and Translate CI will pull out phrases, and after a professional translator translates everything, they will merge into your existing code base with a pull request. And every time you push code to your Git repository, Translate CI will pull any new phrases out, translate them, and create a PR back. See how you can turn translation from a hassle into a breeze at translateci.com. Welcome back to Software Social. Today we have a special guest, Nick Zadrozny, the founder of One More Cloud. Nick, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Nick, we are so excited to have you on today. Um, had so much fun hanging out with you at Founder Summit and so excited to learn more about One More Cloud, aka the name most people know it by, Bonsai. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to nerd out. I love finding, that was my favorite thing about Founder Summit was finding my people, right? Finding our people to just nerd out about whatever. So um happy to share more of my story and, and just kind of see where the conversation takes us. I love it. Could we get started with you telling us about a little bit about Bonsai, what it is for listeners who don't know? Definitely. Well, um, as we alluded to, One More Cloud is the name of the business. Uh, really kind of a, a side effect there of just two engineers hitting the ground running, needed to spin up an LLC in a bank account, didn't really think too much about <laughs> the name. The name. Just named uh, it something. Honestly, yeah. better than spending six months fretting over it and not launching anything. So Totally. <laughs> I mean, we started our business too back in 2009, 2010, and the cloud was was a new thing. It was felt like kind of a buzz. So tongue, one more cloud was a little tongue in cheek, but it also was a little bit of a vision of wanting to create different kinds of cloud hosted services. So um, we got started with search as a service and our first product is called web solar, another super creative name. It's a hosted version of Apache solar. And uh, that was kind of the the best of breed open source search engine back in 2009 and 2010. Uh, Bonsai came a little later. It's a managed Elasticsearch. The name uh, was some homage to a phrase in there in the, the documentation for the open source project. I didn't realize how much they liked the 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 Bonsai cool imagery until they uh, the founder the creator of Elasticsearch created Elastic Inc. and their first logo was a Bonsai tree. Oops. <laughs> but hey, we were there first. Uh, we actually were kind of a, the first to market on both um, Solar and Elasticsearch hosting in in the cloud, um, which is kind of a cool feather in our cap for just a, a couple of bootstrapped engineer founders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when, were you guys working full-time jobs at the time? It was a bit of a mix for us. Um, okay. I had been freelancing, just like freelance web development for a few years before that. Um, and my co-founder, Kyle, had been doing full-time jobs at a handful of different, like he, we were kind of the same um, 
same cohort of, of engineers in the mid aughts. Uh, he did the San Francisco startup rounds while I was kind of freelancing independently. Um, so yeah, earlier versions were, uh, for me, it was kind of full-time because I was just between projects and, and um, when the opportunity presented itself. Kyle, I think, was coding things on on uh, train rides to Palo Alto or something, and uh, in his in his uh, evenings. Um, although he was, he also very early in our history took a job at Twitter, where he was a database engineer for a good number of years during the rapid scaling and fail veiling of Twitter, which uh, we benefited a lot from his experiences there. Uh, so yeah, it was it was definitely a mix, some moonlighting, and for me, it was kind of the full time dive in, um, and and so from very early on, um, we also didn't take any funding, so being fully bootstrapped meant we had to get this thing to profitable, kind of as soon as possible because the clock was ticking between me needing to get a real job or a real project, uh, pretty soon on there. Can you give us some context on your life at that point, like? Were you single? Do you have a spouse? Did you have kids? Like, yeah, I was. Um, I was in the last year of my singleness. Um, I actually met my wife right around the time when I started working on this project. I think she thought it was kind of amusing but crazy, and then I'd go back to getting a real job at some point. Um, although, yeah, and she was a, a teacher. Um, Incidentally, I have since, you know, she's gone through a code boot camp and we now work together, although she, she swore she would never uh, work for me. Uh, that's a whole nother story. I think work, people working with their spouses is a whole different, uh, is a really interesting blend of things. But yeah, I, um, this is me raising I, I was freelancing. Right <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Not that you all have any opinions about that. Um. So it was, uh, yeah, I was really kind of the tail end of my uh, my 20s and single and very, uh, very lean in terms of the cost of maintaining my lifestyle, shall we say, uh, which uh, is probably a necessary ingredient in bootstrapping. Um, and I'm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I could do that again <laughs> 10 years later. So, so did you, did you have a vision? What what kind of inspired you to go after this? Was it just the cloud was new and hot and you were like, I could do this, hosted. I'm just going to try it and see what happened. Did you have people pulling, asking you? What was the impetus to go down this path? Yeah. I think I think it was largely annoyance. Annoyance that the thing <laughs> didn't exist. Uh, yeah. Frustration okay. of having had to do the work in previous uh, gigs. I had had a few clients where uh, there was a feature on the app where they're they wanted search hey can you just put search on that and towards the end of oh, yeah sure no problem like search is everywhere right how hard could it be turns out really freaking hard especially when you have to spend a bunch of time uh setting up and configuring this what turns out to be a very complex piece of software so really that that level of annoyance doing the work and then every time you go to especially back in 2009 2010 um some website where you run a search query and nothing comes back that you want or expect that's the other uh, just frustration of like this really ought to be better um as far as the business uh, so kyle was uh, in a cab at a rails conf with the founders of heroku and they were just about ready to launch this marketplace thing and they're okay. like hey you've done some search work this doesn't exist you should just you should do that we'll, we'll put you in our marketplace it'll be great 
And and that, so that's where that specific idea came from. So yeah, I don't think we we um, communicated that. So Bonsai started as a Heroku add-on. Webseller and Bonsai both did. Yeah, Web that's seller. where we launched. Um, my first project with um, was was actually like making a website for WebSolar so people could go and actually sign up for an account outside of the Heroku API. So we did launch like as an independent like entity, but that was one of those really important early ingredients was we kind of just got handed a really great channel for acquiring customers, um, which is one of the elements I just feel like we got so lucky in, in our uh, story having been given that opportunity. Although Heroku remains like a really uh, neat place. And I think other, uh, yeah, there are plenty of other cloud uh, or there's plenty of other marketplaces out there where people can launch products into. Yeah. And you get a built-in traction channel that way. Built-in traction, um, especially when you can integrate in such a way that plays to people's instincts of how to use Heroku, like having been a developer at the time too, just uh, knowing that how Heroku works. So for example, like we were very, uh, very big on providing a free plan or maybe in the early days, like it was certainly a, an inexpensive plan because Heroku is a great place to sort of kick the tires on an idea. And so you start with something small and you kind of, it really embodies that premise of the cloud of like scaling up elastically as you need it. And so yeah. uh, having a, an inexpensive or, or very accessible entry-level plans was something that was always really important and still to this day is a really important like choice for us in our pricing and our architecture. That's really interesting. And I, I want to pivot this to Colleen for a moment because Colleen has sort of been considering whether she should have some sort of free plan or not or like what to do i think it was like a month ago or so we were talking about yeah. that right so Colleen? i have like a, just in case i didn't tell you i have a file uploader simple file upload it's a heroku add-on yeah and so i've been toying with this idea for exactly that reason the way because if you think of like everything you use on heroku you like paper trail is a perfect example right you start with free and then you're like oh i need some more logs they're like you can only get your log mm -hmm. if you pay me 12 dollars. you're like yes and you just keep going up. Um, actually, I'm going to do it today. You've talked me into it with that 30 second, <laughs> Great. 30 I mean, second snippet. One thing people don't really like pay attention to there is one of the really heavily utilized parts of Heroku that's kind of transparent is their deploy pipelines where you can do continuous integration and other types of testing. Um, and we get a lot of usage on our free plan there. It's not heavy usage, but the fact that it so closely emulates, like it's a very realistic test in terms of what to expect in a prod environment is makes it a very heavily utilized like part of our service. So it doesn't have to be much. Um, and just, just the fact that it has the same types of responses to the behavior in a test environment and is totally disposable ends up being a pretty cool um, reason to do, I think, freemium. Yeah. Well, and like you said, I do think it, it really works well with the Heroku ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So you guys were Bonsai. Okay. So it's just you and your founder. If we go back to 2010, you and your founder, and mm -hmm. how did you guys meet? Were you guys friends? Did you go to college together? We, yeah, we went to college Met at together. At a bar? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, practically, um, we didn't know each other in college, um, but we both did computer science at uh, UCSD. We were both were computer science minors, I should say um at UCSD um 
and what we were part of this. So my major was funny. It was <laughs> interdisciplinary computing in the arts and music. What? Um, yeah. Right. Um, I, you know, I did mathematics and computer science my first two years and kind of got bored with how dry it was and, and knew that I wanted to build websites and be creative. And so this was a kind of a new, uh, kind of a new degree program at UCSD. Uh, I think there's other, I'm sure, I mean, it's just been 20 years since I've been in college, so I'm sure this is less of a weird thing now, but it was more of like this mixed media. It was a program, like generative creation of art and lots of art classes lots of music classes lots of um uh, and and i just really enjoyed like how creative everyone was in these classes and the things that they were building with computers was just a lot of fun to be part of that so my thesis project there was i i programmed a uh i generated a score for a piano to play based on tracing a running computer process and like dumping the values that were happening inside of it which was that's awesome. Uh, that's it was so a cool. it was a serendipitous discovery of something that like oh hey that sounded cool I guess I'm done. So um, <laughs> anyway, Kyle's was physics and and computer science so um, he's always been the smarter one of the pair of us. But um, anyway, we that's where we met was was UCSD and and around that the um, San Diego Ruby user group back in 2005 and 2006 there was a RubyConf in in San Diego around then so we had a an interesting kind of seed of um like ruby practitioners that started in san diego and a lot of interesting people that went on to do a lot of interesting things so yeah that's where we met um you know he went off to do the startup scene and handed off one of his old clients to me and and we just kind of stayed in touch through the years um but yeah it took us a while before we hired anyone like it's kind of funny to think that far back because we're we're at 13 people on the team now um and so there's been a lot of learning over the over the 12 years. Not exactly a rocket ship in terms of hiring. We're averaging one per per year, but it took us three or four years to hire that first person. So yeah. what that led you to hire someone? The first uh, the first hire it was always a fun story, but for us it was a customer support. It was um we've always wanted to be extremely responsive to people. I, our service is so developer oriented that you can't just do placeholder stock answers. You have to really think about what people are asking in order to give them useful help. I mean, a lot of it is, hey, how do I build search? How do I think about search? Um, and of course, like triaging, like, hey, something seems to be going wrong. Is it on my end? Is it on your end? And so, um, Sounds yeah, hired it. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that <laughs> supporting developers is not easy, but it's rewarding if you like to dive into hard problems, just also very time consuming. So. That's that was that first hire for us. Um, okay, yeah. before you hired, yeah, I, let's go back a little bit. Yeah. When did you know this was going to be a thing? Like, was it immediate? It took off immediately, or did were you grinding for a couple of years? Do you remember? It was. I mean, I guess it was a mix of both. I mean, it was a constant. Um, you know, I think back on those days, and I was always extremely busy. I was working in the nights and weekends and um, working on things that um, it's kind of funny that just aren't problems anymore too. So uh, it's definitely a grind to, um, I think the early days, it was really about stability um, and the tools and managed cloud services just did not really exist. We had 
in those days we had Chef, uh, which was a pretty great uh, tool for computer configuration management, but there was no Kubernetes. There was no, like, I mean, Zookeeper was probably around back then, but not being used by Solar yet. And just so many of the, this was the early cloud days of learning how hard it is to get computers to coordinate with each other. So um, it was hard, like being in that moment, it was hard to know I didn't think of it in terms of, is this taking off or not? I was just constantly busy, constantly talking to customers, fixing what problems they ran into, trying to make our systems better and, um, and just scaling the thing. So I think it, it, um, and it's never been an exponential growth type of company. It's just like a strong linear growth, uh, which definitely adds up, you know, over the course of a decade. But, um, yeah, I don't think we ever stepped back and said, this is, this is going to be a thing. So I'm going to plan to do to hire this person or that person. It was a, Hey, my head's underwater. I need to keep up with this support. It's a really important part of our scaling right now. So, you know, Hey Rob, can you, you should join us and help me like troubleshoot people's problems. It sounds like you had so many fires that you really didn't have time to stop and think about whether it was going to be successful or not, because you, you were just, kind of too busy to get to that level of thinking about, is this going to work? And it's more like, how do I make this work another day? Sure. I mean, yes, I, I think, um, I think it's possible that there is a bit of a value thing going on there too, because it just never set well with me for someone to be experiencing less than perfect or less than, I mean, it's possible that I could have let some of those support tickets sit for longer. And uh, I think if I were to be in a firefighting situation like that, I mean, some of the skills you learn in that kind of environment, you have to learn how to cope with that, how to cope with a constant rush. And then any startup I think is going to go through some period of you feel absolutely overwhelmed. I mean, it's called task saturation in disciplines that study this stuff of like, literally there's so much going on right now that your brain just turns off and you can't think. And when my brain would turn off, I would just work more. And that would be my not thinking is just like sit down and fix the next thing. But it's possible there were better ways of coping in those early days that I would not have been as underwater as I would. But that was the reality of where I was and where I was in my journey is um, it was just the the daily struggle to scale. So, I mean, a lot of that was a consequence of that Heroku side of things, too, is they just kept throwing customers at us like there's no there's no pausing signups or or putting a wait list when the whole right. premise of our our main channel partner was someone will run a command you don't know who they are you're not going to talk to them there's no sales process it's just here they are get ready and go yeah and i i i mean i'm fascinated that you have been i mean you've grown this company for what like 10 years you've had it now 12 years yeah 12 years that is amazing i mean very it seems like and maybe more so now less people are growing their companies a lot of people are trying to exit and i think michelle is in a similar boat where she plans to have geocodio forever what was that like were there were there inflection points on this adventure where you're like man i should just sell this and get out and go to <laughs> cancun right i mean the the opportunities have always been kind of there in the wings i've had six different conversations about potentially selling some of them okay. more interesting than others um i kind of lean back into that camp of of 
I, I like running the business. I think it's really interesting. I think there's plenty of people who entrepreneurship for them is the art of building and selling the business or the business itself is essentially the product. Um, I, I like some of the overlap of that, like working on the business and, and treating it as its own thing and learning the skills of, of managing and running a business. But and who knows, I may sell someday. I'm sure someone could offer me a number right now that I couldn't, you know, in good conscience say no to. Uh, we haven't hit that point yet. And and to that point, like the team is still pretty motivated to keep working on what we're doing. And and so it kind of depends on the stakeholders as well as as just me. But I've definitely leaned towards, I like what we're doing. Nobody's made an offer that's kind of better than my own sense of what the future holds. And having a lot of intrinsic enjoyment of running your business speaks like goes a long way towards that. So, and I don't know, Michelle, if you've ever, how many, like, we didn't get around to talking about your exit opportunities or, you know, do you keep them at arm's length? How do you chase them away or deal with them? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we probably had about the same amount, but usually when it comes up, we try to sort of put the kibosh on that conversation pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, as you said, we, we just, enjoy working on the business which you know coming up on eight years now it'll be eight years in january and i we're almost surprised that we still enjoy it as much as we do and you know i feel like i hear in what you're saying that you know to colleen asking you know have there been inflection points when you were you know you were exhausted and done with it I mean, it it doesn't sound like there's one of those points or even 10 of those points. Instead, it was more like you're having so many of those in, in a given day at period time and not necessarily that you want to walk away, but points when you're going, this is really hard. How do we figure this out? And you kind of went towards other solutions of like, okay, how do I improve how I think about managing this kind of um, – level of tasks or you know can can we hire someone like what are the other solutions like when you mm. got to those points where it was too much selling is always an option but it sounds like you work through all the other options yeah i guess you know you, that. you build up habits and habit loops in decision making too when you spend so much time just like really focused on making things better like that's kind of my default choice in a lot of contexts is like, well, I'm just going to, you know, betting on myself and my ability to make it run better and, and grow is, has worked out pretty well. So that tends to be like my default strategy, I guess. There have been inflection points, not so much related to exits. I do have a very clear, oh my, I could just walk away right now moment, which was in 2014, we had a major outage. Um, some nefarious vandal who we still don't even know who that was got their hands on our root aws account key i woke up at seven in the morning to pagers going off logged into aws and every ec2 instance was in a state of shutting down that oh was crazy God. oh my goodness that was a oh. global outage for web solar and bonsai bonsai was a bit better architected at that point in our history and the servers came back in 30 minutes the data didn't uh there was a lot of recoveries from backups going on web solar took a couple of days to really get back up and running um that was was gnarly i was probably getting two hours of sleep a night for the next five six days and then 
probably two plus weeks of continued kind of firefighting and cleanup. And that was, uh, I think that was one of those biggest moments of like, if I didn't quit then, like there aren't a whole lot of other circumstances that would make me quit now. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was, um, that was a great learning experience. Not one that I recommend <laughs> to anybody. <laughs> so uh, that was probably the most dramatic, like I this such a clear and visceral memory, like also pre coffee to be fair of like staring at that screen and be like, I don't want to do, I don't want to do this. I don't think I want, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to fix it. Okay, let's go. You know? Yeah. So you said you now have 13 employees. So you guys have grown mm -hmm. slowly but steadily. So mm -hmm. how has that like changed your role? And what has that been like as you go from, I guess, developer to manager, CEO? Sure. Yeah. I mean, developer to manager to CEO, kind of the three I mean, you start off when, when it's three or four people and you can easily have a, you know, let's all get on a call every week and just talk through what everyone's working on. Like not a whole lot of complexity to that, but the more people you have, and now by the time we're hitting over 10, certainly um, what everyone's working on is not always relevant to what everyone else is working on. And so when you start hitting those moments, you start needing like, okay, I guess we need to organize ourselves a little bit differently. And just for efficiency and coordinating our activity. So things like that, I find to be also very interesting, um, even at an abstract level. I think uh, there's um, you can bring a little bit of the sort of computer science attitude of, of what's the cost of coordination among many different uh, actors in a system um, that, that can be geeked out over. So I, I just kind of enjoy that stuff. And um, that is to me like kind of the manager part of how to make sure people have what they need to be productive and like to be flowing in their jobs. Um, that's a real rough transition. I think for an engineer to go to a manager of like, you spend so many years like defining your, the value of a day based on problems you're solving and code you're shipping and stuff you're building to now what other people are building and shipping. And um, I still wrestle with that today, although it's better now than it was, you know, three, four years ago, probably. And then the CEO level is a whole nother level too of, um, you know, designing the business itself and how, how do you get ahead of, you know, so many years of my early days spent being reactive. How do you make more deliberate decisions that are pointed in a, in a clear direction that other people can follow along with and actually like, you know, coherently move toward as a group um, and, and navigating these big conversations about, do we want to sell the company? Do we want to take investment? Like, what is our, you know, unique selling proposition in the market as it's going to exist in five years? I don't know. So, so you have not taken any investment. That's right. Yeah. And really just, what's I your, mean, what's your revenue? So we'll do, if you, we'll do a if you're comfortable, 6 million this year. Yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, okay. we'll do a little over 6 million this year. Um, and that's amazing yeah thank you i agree <laughs> either it's, way that you been, bootstrapped to six million dollars it's been wild i remember just wondering like oh what's it going to take to get to our first million and that felt like such a far off goal so and now we're wondering all right what's 10 look like what's 20 look like um wow and that's a little bit more the ceo hat than the manager or engineer hat that's for sure of those different hats you wear i'm curious like 
which one is your favorite and which one is your least favorite and why? Hmm. Gosh. I've I mean they're like they're like my children. I love them all. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Don't you only have one child? I do have one child. <laughs> and I love him all. Um so I mean, gosh, that's such a great question. It would be at I mean, a year or two ago, I would have said the engineering is my favorite. And I still do probably more engineering type work than I ought to. Although these days it's more kind of product or design type work than actual like sitting down and coding. I'm kind of useless as a coder now. I mean, I can I can do ugly prototypes. And, and in some ways, that's sometimes the best way to express an idea is, is an ugly prototype. But I am not the person that gets a project across the finish line anymore by any means. But fortunately, I have people on the team that are better at me than that. Um, I am really enjoying the CEO hat. Um, I am really enjoying the manager hat. So it's kind of tough to choose between those. I think right now the manager hat is more relevant to my team, just figuring out just kind of how to like, we we're the culture of our work is very important to us. Like, because we don't have those outside stakeholders pressuring us to exit, we have a team that's really focused on building a place where we all enjoy the work, where we are all able to sort of share in the wealth of the work. And so that um, has been, I mean, a, a good manager, I think, or, or good managing of our time and energy and resources. Like there's a really large and like really immediate return on the energy that we spend there. I think, I hope, um, if I'm seeing things correctly. Um, so, but yeah, it's it's been just, I guess, sort of an arc where I'm kind of retiring the engineer part of it um i'm mostly in a manager and i'm kind of entering into uh the ceo hat and i do imagine that in the next year or two i will even sort of hand off managing to other people and become more just a kind of a pure ceo so when you like what what kind of things did you guys change when you think about growing and when you started like you're saying going from one to six million did that does that involve just doing a lot more enterprise clients like what does that even look like it does. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the majority of our revenue is enterprise clients, probably okay. two thirds of our revenue. Um, for a while I thought that like, oh, that must mean we're doing something wrong on the product side. And I, I'll be frank, you know, our, you know, managed search as a service is not such a unique product anymore. We've got plenty of other options out there. And I don't think that there's, you know, our, if you just kind of sign up with a credit card, there's nothing super unique i mean i really like our our metrics i think that we give like per request metrics and response time dis, dif, uh, distributions i think is still kind of unique um out there but i'm, I'm a little bit ho-hum on how like differentiated our product is at this point in time um something i want to work on incidentally but uh the enterprise service like that's where we really shine right now anyways and being embedded in in clients teams um it is a little bit more human intensive being able to provide like a really strategic levels of, of service. And so, I mean, I was giving a presentation to one of our enterprise clients just this week. They've been with us as of next March, they will have been with us for 10 years. And wow. it's been myself and my CTO essentially supporting this account the entire time. Like they've gone through probably five different teams in that time. And we've been that kind of continuity for their search and their organization. And that ends up being kind of a story in a lot of our enterprise clients. And that's really valuable. It's, it's, um, it's hard to make, you know, old, there's only one way to make a long, like an old, long relationship. 
and that's through a lot of time and experience. So um, the, the amount of attention we're able to give to those customers is really, really nice. And I think there's a nice, um, we have a nice differentiation in the market there because I don't think you can buy that kind of attention from other services because they are operating at such a high scale compared to us. Uh, like just try to get someone on the phone from AWS who will do a deep dive with you on how Lucene works inside of, you know, Elasticsearch and OpenSearch. And in fact, AWS has referred clients to us because um, folks that need our kind of attention. Um, so yeah, I, it, a lot of enterprise uh, revenue there. And I think that's actually pretty normal for like B2B SaaS as well as this sort of like the product B is this sort of marketing channel i mean this i value the self-service so i don't want to like diminish the value of the product um but the real money is in like these these enterprise deals where it's mission critical and it's just like hugely valued to the organization and you know failure is just not an option um, and which is what our enterprise clients get from us so i, I agree with that oh, we can sorry if i can continue this for a second like i mean totally agree with that um on a, on a couple of points there um, but you underscored something really, really important from like a product strategy, like CEO perspective there, that it's not just about the product and the features, which mm. I think is something that developers starting businesses kind of don't see a lot of the time is that your product could be basically the same as something else that's out there. But if you have a way of selling it and providing the service and providing access to it in a way that makes it easier for the customer to use it, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the UI is better, but it means the way they buy it or how it works in their organization, that can be the differentiator that matters to the customer, not necessarily the actual software that's delivered. Mm-hmm. Totally yeah, agree. The, the way in which the delivery happens, couldn't agree more. I think uh, for us, learning how to sell was a major part of that. And I think the engineer hat, and one reason why I'm you know happy to shift from being an engineer to an, to an entrepreneur is recognizing that so many other things besides just the lines of code and the screens and the UI and all that stuff matter to, to people. Like being able to show up in a sales call we are so intensely like empathetic and discovery oriented in our sales calls. And um, that's usually to the credit of, of Brian, our head of sales, now our VP of our whole enterprise like service. Um, he taught me how to sell and he's just incredibly like intuitive and empathetic. And like we have heard from customers that they get more value out of their discovery calls with us than they do out of paid engagements with other vendors like we just through asking questions and understanding their problems give them like new insights into what they need and what they need to be thinking about and that kind of thing makes me really happy like we don't try to be gatekeepers to knowledge or the secrets of how to do things well like we have other value to provide which is that we're on the pager 24 7 like forever as long as you need us and um, we don't need to like treat the secrets of scaling and using the thing as some sort of like, we're not going to put a bunch of paperwork in front of someone to get their signatures. Uh, so that's, I think that is like a really important part of the business um, and the product. Like there's more than one way to experience a product as a, as a customer. And that doesn't always mean 
filling out forms on a website. Sometimes it means picking up the phone. And I think for, you know, us as like founders that are very involved with the customers, like I, that's something that I have had people say to us that, that exactly that point you said that, you know, try getting AWS or Google on the phone, but like they can get the founders of the company on the phone or on email. Like when, you know, in our case, we're still doing all the support. And so like when there is an issue, like they're getting the person who made it. Um, and people really value that. And I think they value that more than we realize and charge for. And I mean, it sounds like your head of sales could should just be charging consulting fees to potential customers, um, based on how much value they're getting out of that. Yeah. The thought has come up. Um, that's actually kind of an interesting, like arcane detail about some sales process. So we don't charge like a migration or onboarding fee. I, and that can be common in enterprise SaaS. And in some ways, it's so common that people have budget for it, like separately from budget for the product or the service. And so um, we've only done this like a small handful of times when people are like, oh, no, really, we are happy to pay an onboarding fee, wink, wink. Um, and uh, or it's just kind of a part of the trade off how you package things. But uh, it's not it's not our default go to. And it's also. I mean, maybe it's value left on the table, but I think that's a great way of doing business is leaving a little value on the table so everyone feels good about the deal. Like, And you don't have to extract every little uh, piece of value when you are this kind of a small, close-knit, like independent team as well. Here, here. I mean, I think we we also don't sort of squeeze everything out of, you know, the deal when we're first getting the signatures, right? It's if they're going to be a customer for many years to come, like I am happy to have someone pay me every year who is delightful to work with, who, you know, like contributes back to our company and is just a nice person to work with rather than, you know, being sure that I got, you know, you know, the extra $10,000 or whatever I could have gotten out of that the first time around because it's not just a one-time engagement. And I think when you are the founder or you have this continuity in who is working on the accounts, that kind of longitudinal view um, of the value of it, uh, you, like you can really have that perspective on it. Absolutely. So what are some of the challenges that are facing you now? Great question. I think we're, um, you know, we are able to, or we kind of find ourselves in a, in a season where we're able to look ahead a little bit. And I mean, reflecting on 12 years of doing this business and, um, I still have some of that, uh, that drive, that annoyance of this could be so much better. Why I'm just, I vaguely resent uh, that the market hasn't produced some solutions to some problems that I see. So I have a lot of interest in continuing to dive into the problems my customers have. So we're doing some prototyping right now of a new take on how we want to do managed search. And so I'm hoping, I mean, we're going through some validation. We're having some early talks with um, some of our customers who we think would be a good fit for that. Um, but it's an opportunity to kind of reflect on like, how would I go to market with a brand new product, but, you know, 10 years, 12 years of experience this time and right. uh, like an infinite runway. 
um, yeah. kind of a fun way of approaching it and in a bit of a privileged way of approaching it. So I feel really um, lucky to like be able to uh, explore some of those ideas. So that's, that's interesting. I, I think the challenging part for me is recognizing, gosh, just that point we made earlier, like distribution is so important. It's more than just building the thing. It's how do people experience the thing? How do they experience coming into the knowledge of the thing? Um, I think that I will be spending a lot more time this time around thinking about how people um, come into their experience of of the product. Um, that sounds very abstract, but that's fine. We'll do a less. We'll do a more concrete conversation on this another day. <laughs> but <laughs> so I have I have some interest in continuing to kind of innovate on the product side, and um, and I think some new and original ideas, and I'm and I'm really excited about that. I think we are gonna have to grow the team. I, it's been a it's been a value to like keep it tight, but uh, that yeah. brings a whole set of challenges. Just scaling people, and I'm kind of an annoying uh, boss to have because I like to try to do everything by figuring out all the first principles of it. And yeah. uh, so I think there's just a lot to learn, and that's that's I guess my challenge, my opportunity really is just like dive in and uh, and learn, and um, you know, just try to keep putting good things out there in the world. Do you ever think you'll get to a point where you feel like done? Maybe I'm open to yeah. the possibility. Um, you know, I think every time I think about when is that going to be, uh, I always have one more thing on the list. So yeah. I'm working on that one more thing right now. Who knows? Maybe once that gets to market and is super successful, I will feel like I'm done. Or maybe when it gets to and launches and goes to market, I will feel like, I've done my part and I can hand it off to someone else. So uh, TBD, I think. It sounds like you really enjoy the work. I do. I enjoy the work. I enjoy the customers. I enjoy the team. Um, I feel super lucky. Uh, I get to work with my wife, work from home or walk to my office. I mean, it's just, it's hard to beat. And um, I don't know. I hope to see a lot more um, SaaS companies in that take that path come into existence. And I love talking to other founders about their businesses and um, those kinds of journeys that they're on as well. So, Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on Software Social today. It was really a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure talking and uh, let's stay in touch. Nick, will we see you again next year at Founder Summit? I already bought my ticket, so I think so you probably I. will. Did you Multiple see in the cities, email? Though, so we'll what see. does that mean? We have yeah, to all coordinate that we're in the same city. I was like, wait, what is this multiple As city? I don't know, but if it means I get to go to two founder summits next year, I am so in for that. There we go. Let's make it a yes and. Por que no los dos? <laughs> exactly. Por que no los dos? Well, on that note, thank you so much, Nick. It's been really great talking to you. Likewise. Have a good one. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI, the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality, Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from The Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry. Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outseta, Justin Jackson, MegaMaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, 
Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from Consent Kit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nusi Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of WorkCited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Larabels, a community for Larabel developers underrepresented due to their gender, Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Convini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.